Hey everyone, it's Chris and Joe here. We just have a quick little intro into our next episode. It's episode 36 for Where the Wild Things Are. We have a little bit of an audio issue at the beginning of this episode and also for episode 37. Luckily, we have already troubleshooted this. So after episodes 36 and 37, we will already have this troubleshooted or troubleshot for uh, moving forward, um, but the beginning of the episodes have a little bit of patchy audio and then it improves throughout the episodes. Yeah, so it's, bear with us on that. Check your chords, children, is all I can say. And uh, yeah, it's, it's going to sound a little crackly, a little sort of uh, every once in a while the audio will speed up, which is annoying, but like by the by the end, midpoint and end of the episode, it gets better. It'll just be for the next two weeks. We do apologize for the aggravation and annoyance, but we do encourage you to listen anyway because, as far as I'm concerned, they're two really good episodes. So, but yeah, by uh, two weeks from now, the we will be back on track. The downside of recording separately. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But we love you. Thank you for listening with us. Thank you for uh, almost, we're getting, we're on our second Oscar season at least. We're not quite to year two of the podcast, but yeah. we have wrapped ourselves around into yet another Oscar season. So should be fun thank you though keep, keep yelling at us on twitter on titles that you want to hear we will be approaching like the 50th episode and we'll try to make that a special one that you guys have been asking for um and we love you guys thanks oh, oh wrong house no the right no, house I didn't get we want to talk to Marilyn hack i'm from canada water Truly great king. King, king, king. Hey, king, what's your first order of business? It's the wild rumpus star! This is our family. I'm Ara. I put the holes in the trees. This is Judith. You don't really need to know me. Kind of a downer. That's Alexander. I hate this tree! Well, he just wants attention. Don't give him the satisfaction. (laughs) That's Douglas. I count on him for everything. We'll take care of each other and we'll all sleep together in a real pile. Hello and welcome to the This Head Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that truly remembers the Claire Forlani era. Every week on This Head Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Joe Reed. I am here, as always, with Chris File, my wonderful co-host. Welcome to this wild rumpus, Chris. Hello. Hello. Very wild. It's very, like, brown and beige yeah, and yellow. Say, but, like, but soft and fluffy, yeah. and you want to just sort of bury your face in it. That's sort of me with this movie. Okay, so, like... We talked, we toyed with this movie a few times, and now we finally did it. And it's like I kind of. Have we should say it's this... it's where it's where the wild things are. Where the wild things are, okay. Yes. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into it, but it's like I've kind of had this movie like ever since I first saw it in the theater at full arm's reach. Like not like this movie is great, but like get it away from me at the yeah. same time. Like I don't think I've ever fled a theater faster in my life oh wow oh let's we'll we'll let's pull that apart when we get to we'll the... fully get into it yeah. and it's like at the same time this is 
I think the best movie we've ever done. Like it feels like a little bit like I will say a little bit of Rams. Yeah, as a little bit of a sneak preview, this is the only movie we've done on this had Oscar buzz that has been my number one movie of the year that it was made. So, oh, great. I mean, it was definitely on my top ten. I think this is kind of a crappy year for movies. I want to talk, before we get into like the actual movie, though, as a little bit of a preamble, was this one of the books that you read a lot as a child, and or what were the books you read a lot as a child, and were any of them ever made into movies? It really was not a book that I read as a child. Like, I don't think we had a copy of this in my house. Yeah. Um, or I don't remember one being there. It's definitely a book I remember from, like, grade school because I think I'm definitely part of a generation, and maybe you feel this way too, where it's just, like, visually speaking, the Maurice Sendak children's book is, like, part of the visual language of children. Yes. You know? I like, think that's where right. It's everywhere. It's like... I think that's right. And I had a very similar experience where I... I didn't read it more than like maybe once as a kid. We didn't have it in the house, but it was like every time you went to the library and there was a display of like children's books, it was there. It was always in like the school shelf, like the bookshelves in your classrooms at school. It was like, I think it's, I think you're right. The fact that it was like from 1963. So it was like our parents' generation knew that it was like this great children's book. And it was in the atmosphere, even if it wasn't, like, your particular favorite book. And it's, like, those characters, like, decorated the library or, like, decorated, like, third grade classrooms, like, huge cutouts of them. So it's, like, even if we weren't really, like, the type of kids that read and read and read this children's book, it was, like, we saw those characters. And those, like, that style of illustration really sort of permeated a lot of the books. Um, But that wasn't the... One, I'm trying to think of if any of my great childhood books ever became. I think the closest probably is like The Cat in the Hat, right? Like, mm. we had a lot of the Dr. Seuss books. We had, you know, Green Eggs and Ham was our big favorite one. Like, and I'm kind yeah. of surprised actually that Green Eggs and Ham hasn't been made into a movie in some way just because of like some type of weird feature length movie. Just that's because terrible. every every recognizable intellectual property is eventually going to be made into a movie and like. You know, well, Joe, you've just cursed us with this. This is probably coming. Coming, some you un- could, enterprising producer. Here's what I'm going say. to make this happen. You could make a good movie out of Green Eggs and Ham. I don't quite know how, but like, give it to the right people. Like, I because the Doctor Seuss ones we've had, uh, the Grinch, obviously, Cat in the Hat, which is terrible. Horton hears a Who, which is not that bad. Yeah, that's pretty good. I didn't see the Lorax. Neither did um, I. I should. I should stipulate. Right. Dr. Seuss was relatively part of my childhood, more so the Grinch, but, um, I mean... But not the book. We never read the book, The Grinch. We only had the Christmas Oh, see, I I definitely remember the book. No, for me, I mean, like, I was a pretty voracious reader as a childhood, and I would, like, read past my reading level, so it's like a lot of the children's books I read were when I was really young, but, like, for me, the staples... You were in the womb, and you were reading... I was. (laughs) I was. They were, like, feeding me, like, I don't know, by textbooks or something um <laughs> no i read a ton of roll doll um, oh Ooh, so like you were this a very child. year we're talking about you have um fantastic mr fox um yeah but yeah i still have my charlie and the chocolate factory copy from my childhood and it is barely standing it is like you know yeah. put it in a glass frame along with the constitution a lot of people that i know that were my age 
had a lot of investment in Where the Wild Things Are as a movie because it was a book that was so beloved to them as children. And I think a lot of the reaction to Where the Wild Things Are, both positively and negatively, was this referendum on did they did they a- adapt this thing correctly? And the big question for this one was, is this a movie? Did they make up Where the Wild Things Are for kids or did they make a Where the Wild Things Are you know, for the people who loved it then but are now adults it got tagged with like the hipster tag i think very quickly oh definitely i think it's kind of like that's part of the reason why i'm like i like this but like i feel a little embarrassed to say that i think that this is amazing because it's so like you know portland granola um yeah and i think i I think that is i think it is but i also feel like I'm okay with that for various reasons. And ultimately but I think the other degree too to bring loop it back to your point of like people who think that this movie is good or not, like it kind of one of the other questions is does it matter that it follows the original novel or in tone or like visual references? And I feel like a lot of the people who love this movie would tell you no, that it doesn't matter, that it doesn't do that. Yes. And I think that's valid in a lot of ways. I don't know if it's necessarily going to be enough for the people who really, I think there are valid criticisms of the movie on the lines of why would a kid like this? Why would a kid watch this? Are you just sort of, you know, stroking your own childhood, the ego of your own childhood, essentially? So we're talking about Where the Wild Things Are, directed by the great Spike Jones, written written by... Uh, Spike Jones and Dave Eggers did the adaptation from the children's book by Maurice Sendak, starring Max Records, who I want to get into talking about Max Records, because what a cute kid who, like, I have seen in nothing else since this movie. Catherine Keener, and then the voices of James Gandolfini, Lauren Ambrose, Catherine O'Hara, Forrest Whitaker, Chris Cooper, Paul Dano, all star cast of voices, premiered on October 16th, 2009, Chris... Would you venture a 60-second plot summary of where the wild things are? Absolutely. I feel like I'm going to be filling time a little bit. <laughs> you think it's, it's going to be that brief? Movie. Listen, we, we run out of time a lot with this. Oh, I almost gave you an hour. I'm not going to give you an hour. Jesus. Then you would have really been killing <laughs> just time. Just read from the screenplay. <laughs> All right. So whenever you're ready, I will start the timer on your 60-second plot description of where the wild things are. I am fully ready. And go. Okay, so Max Records stars as a child named Max. He is a child of divorce, um, or at least I think we assume. I don't think we know that his dad is dead. It's just like his dad's not there. Anyway, he has an older sister named Claire who is, like, not nice enough to him, but maybe she's just, like, a teenage girl and has teenage friends and teenage concerns anyway. um, Max is, like, not nice enough to his mom. He terrorizes their dog. Um, His mom is, like, a hardworking, like, she's, like, still a... You know, businesswoman. Oh, 30 seconds. Damn. <laughs> Catherine Keener plays the mom. She's also like trying to like live her own life and have her own bliss and date Mark Ruffalo. Anyway, Max does not like that Catherine Keener is dating Mark Ruffalo and he goes off and runs out of the house and enters a fantasy world where he uh, visits the wild things, which are all representations of his personality. Oh, and what he's going through. Um, and there's like six of them. And then like they go through these like whole discussions that are really just like allegories for his emotional state time's up 
didn't even get to the cake. He comes home and has cake. Let the record show, listeners, that Chris was so confident that he was going to be able to get this all in 60 seconds with time to spare, and yet wasn't even into the fantasy land in the first 45 seconds of that summary. I spent as much time. You were in the going world through as Mark Ruffalo's participation in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, okay, I brought up the cake. I mean, if we're just going to dive into first the problems that people have with this movie, there were a lot of. I saw this movie in college, and there were a lot of people who hated this movie that they were like, he should not get to have cake <laughs> after he was poorly behaved. Okay. All right. And watching it now, I'm kind of like okay, maybe he shouldn't have cake (laughs) Um, after like having nieces and nephews and things and like seeing them behave poorly. Sometimes I have a lot Um, of, I have a lot of thoughts along that line, but mine are mostly, you are way too nice to the sister. That is a bad sister. I don't think necessarily. We don't know enough of that sister to know that she was a bad sister. That sister looked over and saw her crying much younger brother saw that he was like in distress and fully did not do anything about it that is to me that's a bad sister i'm sorry oh, oh i'm okay. sorry that you have you're saying cool that it's weird friends. because like you are an oldest child and i'm a youngest child and you're like no she should be nice to your younger brother and i'm like he's kind of a shit though i would never ever have left any of my younger siblings hanging like that is all i will say See, and I'm like, I was. That's not what an older sibling does. That's not what a good older sibling does. You I see love that my your little. Brother. You see your little brother is crying like that. You go over to him and you make sure he's okay. <laughs> Are we already going to do the hard pivot into like why this movie is hard to watch? Because like I was definitely the younger sibling that was like left sobbing and crying, and they were like, "He'll be fine." Ugh, breaks my heart. That scene where he yeah, starts. But maybe I was a little shit too. Who knows? You're all little kids are little shits. You know what? whatever deal with it that scene where he starts the snowball fight with his sister first of all that he's literally like peering inside from outside the window at his sister and like calling her to come out and play and she won't play and that to me is fine that to me is all like within the boundaries of older sibling younger sibling um and then he starts the snowball fight with her friends and the fact that the friends aren't mean to him the fact that the friends think that they're just sort of like they're having fun with him but in that sort of careless way that older people have with like the younger siblings of their friends where they're like we can sort of like be rough with him and be a little bit aggressive with him and it's fine because you know it's whatever and then they totally like collapse in his igloo and it's that his igloo got collapsed that he got scared for a second because he was like you know buried and that they're all leaving and all of those things you can see in that scene are why he's crying is I thought that scene was an incredibly economical way of, like, summing up exactly where this kid is at in his life right now. Well, but also, yes, that he goes in and, like, terrorizes the house because he, like, goes into his sister's room in a rage and then rips up, like, some ugly little, like, trinket he made her. Yes. Like, I Uh, want to destroy this sign that I love you. I know. It's the two of those things together. It's and really well done. It's really it is I, incredibly well done. Yeah. Like when I say this movie sent me, that scene ascent me. Hard to watch. The temptation is to remember this movie as just the stuff when he goes into the fantasy land, but like it really does take its time to establish 
what his life is because ultimately the movie is the Fantasyland stuff draws these very, very sort of like thick line parallels to what's going on. And ultimately I think that's fine and good because again, if you are at all, if you at all want a younger audience, a children, you know, an audience of children to watch this, I think those very obvious parallels are good. And also I think you want the parallels to be obvious that Max is getting them in the story. I think a lot of the I think a lot of this is isn't just that like we in the audience are supposed to nod and be like, aha, I see KW is like his sister. And like he's learning that like being the parent is hard and you can't like but like he's supposed to get those lessons too. So they have to be very you know, they have to be apparent enough that like that kid is going to get them. I wanna backtrack a little bit though and get into why this movie had buzz and and the sort of making of it before we go back into the movie because I feel like that's I think that's a big part of why this movie was sort of seen the way it was because this movie mm-hmm. the book was published in 1963 and essentially it people had been trying to make it for decades and one of the early uh attempts was Disney Pixar, like early early Pixar, like like yeah. Toy Story Pixar. That this We're talking was talking Luxo Junior Pixar. Right. It was um who was the guy who won the Oscar with Kobe last year? Glenn Keane from uh who was like this great animator and John Lasseter were teaming up to try and get this sort of 3D CGI hybrid with the sort of traditional Disney style hand drawn animation. Were you able to look that up and, and check out that video? Because it's uh, on yes, YouTube. I've seen it before. I'd, I'd seen it like years ago. Yeah, it's on YouTube. It's really check it out if you if you can. It's uh, it very much looks like the sort of mashing together of traditional Disney character animation with 3D backgrounds. It's not quite as sophisticated as what it would become later but it's a really interesting sort of marriage of that because like the kid the you know the animation for max looks similar to like i'm trying to think of like what it reminded me of more than as much as just sort of like the lost boys and peter pan or something like that but but like in that like sort of 90s way i don't know what did you think watching it oh i mean definitely it's still i mean truly not necessarily meant for the masses like you watch it and it's a test yes like i'm sure we'll talk about the test footage for this movie um when we get into that so it's like that's kind of the idea of watching it like i also remember from my childhood like in like a classroom setting watching an actual animated like adaptation that was maybe like 20 or 30 minutes long oh, or something wow. so like it kind of stood in the shadow of that to me oh that's interesting um, i didn't realize but that it's existed. also like literally a carbon copy meant for like children in classrooms. Right. right. Um, so, yeah. And then, so after that, I, uh, it had, again, a lot of people were trying to find ways to adapt it. Spike Jones had jumped on it. I think even as early as like the early two thousands and, somehow had something to do with that as well. I was going to say Maurice Sendak really favored. Yeah. Really favored Spike Jones as the guy to adapt this and but it took him years so the last movie spike jones directed before where the wild things are was 
Adaptation, which was 2002. And he essentially, I mean, he did like music videos and stuff in between then, but essentially like in terms of film stuff, he'd spent all that time, or at least most of that time, trying to get this movie made. And the care that goes into that, I think you can see in the movie, but also I feel like there was a lot of like, all right, how about this? How about this approach? And I I can see why watching the finished project product, I can see why it took a while to get there because it's just like, you really have to come up with a very specific, because the, ultimately the thing is where the wild things are, the book, there's not a lot of meat on those bones in terms of text. No, it's a children's book. Literal text, like, but also just, like, plot. Yeah. It's all imagery. It's all, like, essentially, it's all one image, and that one image is, like, that big sort of scary monster next to this little kid with his little, like, wolf onesie. And Who's, like, crown. a bad kid, too. Right. Like, he's a, like, the movie does a lot to sympathize him, but, like, even just on a character basis, the book really doesn't give you a ton to go off except for this, like, rageful young boy. Right. So, I don't know. Like, what do you think? What do you think of that? Of, of... I mean, I think that's a great jumping point to talk about. Like, that was my rebuttal when, like, peers were like, but it's so different from the book. And it's like, why is it like this? And it's like, this wasn't my memory of what the book was. And it's like, what was your memory of this book? I was going to say. There's not, like, you would have to have some type of interpretation that you can extrapolate on because there's no plot to the book. Right. There's no, like, everything would have to be inference. And especially for Maurice Sendak to sign off on Spike Jones, like, clearly he's at least within the vein of what Maurice Sendak was originally going for. Yeah. I And I, I, I find myself you know, kind of enchanted by this idea that this very kind of, I don't know if I would call Max troubled, but like this kid who's like going through it in his life, right? We're like, you're right. Either, either he's a child of divorce or like for one reason or another, you know, single mom, you know, dating, trying to sort of make ends meet. She could, we see her sort of having struggles with her job where she's talking on the phone about like, what doesn't he like about the report that I handed in? Um, but she's clearly a good mom and cares about him. I like the little detail that she asks him to tell her to tell her a story and that mm-hmm. she like she's writing it down. And you can tell like that's she's she writes down this kid's stories either just to remember them or you know maybe she's going to do something with them at some point. But I like I I mean it's Catherine Keener. Honestly, I feel like <laughs> I'm so in the bag for anything that Catherine Keener does anyway. I just find myself so I just love her so much. Um, And Catherine Keener, like, she doesn't ever really get to speak much of, like, what the truth of this mother is, this woman. Um, But, like, she it's all there in the performance of like she's trying she to just, communicates like, have a, a nice lot. date and have an evening for herself and like yep. just wants Max to behave so that she can send a good impression. Yep. And it, yeah. And then so and she I has think so it, little time to do that. And I think it makes a lot of sense then that you send this kid into, you know, he runs away and he goes into this little imaginary land and the the monsters there are all sort of like downbeat a little depressed, 
more than a little depressed with a lot of these people sort of like they're going through it as well and it's these very sort of mundane where it's just like carol the monster voiced by james gandolfini is sad because kw is uh who's voiced by lauren ambrose has just sort of like found other friends there is no funnier moment in this movie than you when you the first time you see the two friends that that kw has has left this group for oh and it's God. just the two like subverbal owls and that she shoots out of the sky <laughs> it's well that's the other thing is just like there's a lot of little touches to this where it's just like just in the way that they behave which is rough and rambunctious and don't really like behave along the lines of like natural rules of of motion and whatever and which is your old boy humor yes but like one of the things that this movie like kind of shockingly does well is that it finds pathos in like prepubescent boy rage humor right and like makes it incredibly human through these like monstrous things like what can you even call these like humanoids these hairy humanoids i just call them like monsters but like they're they're you know the wild things yeah basically i also feel like i mean to answer the question of like would a 10 year old boy imagine a kind of like grumpy snarky Catherine o'hara voiced like monster like judith is and it's like maybe not specifically but like this kid also just observes everything that's happening around him. We've seen that in the first yeah. 25 minutes of the movie where he observes his sister. He observes his sister's friends. He sees what's going on everywhere. So, like, these are the little things that he's picked up in the world of, like, what adults are like or what, like, people who maybe don't like him are like. And or how people express themselves. Or how, how he expresses himself. Like, right. Yeah. Where, like, the Alexander character, the Paul Dano character is this sort of like sulky little boy who doesn't think anybody is listening to him and and sort of, you know, rebels in his own way too and I think you see a lot of what Max sees about his own behavior in that character and none of it's perfectly one to one but that works too. I think that's I think that's appropriate too. I think it's an incredibly smart um movie that sometimes if you if you want to be sort of uncharitable to the movie and be like, yeah, it really wants you to know how smart it is. And it's like, yeah, that's true. That's sort of the the generation of filmmaker that Spike Jones comes from. Whereas like he's, yes, very self-consciously clever. That's sort of his thing. That's sort of what like that whole generation of filmmakers between like. I think that's such a disingenuous thing to say against like this movie and like what the tone of this movie is, though. I agree. Be- it's just I don't think that this movie is like trying to show you how smart it is I think like this is a movie that's entirely fantastical it's like an allegory like it, what do you want it to do how do you want it to do that with humility Like, I think this is a movie that earns the generosity it wants from its audience I think it requires a degree of generosity from its audience a degree of yes. uh, leeway and I think it earns that leeway. And not every movie does. I remember, um, I don't know what your feelings on Little Miss Sunshine are, but I think that was another movie where a lot of people either found it captivating or found it cloying. And I think, especially when you get into like how it ends on this sort of like ridiculous, all the family jumping and dancing around to the Rick James song or whatever. And I remember, mm-hmm. um, I can't remember 
who Lin- Linda Holmes was writing for at the time, because I think it was pre her time at NPR. But I remember she mentioned she's just like some movies earn that ending and some movies don't. And she's like Little Miss Sunshine earned that ending. And I think of that a lot when I think of movies where it's just like, would I have accepted this kind of thing in a different movie? And it's like, yeah, maybe not. But not every movie does the work of getting you to the point where you want that where you want or will accept that as an ending. Right. Right. And I think where the wild things are, does that, you know, with its own sort of interpretation of this universe, where I really think it does the work of getting you there emotionally and sort of mentally. So I think it's also such like a sensitive movie. Yeah. Um, And like, you know, taking wild creative leaps as well, doing both of those at the same time that I just, I feel like so on the surface, it's obvious what it is that to like make those type of accusations against this movie just feels like I get if it's not for you, like if it's not to your taste or something, or like even if you just think it doesn't work, but like the type of things you're describing just sound like a bad faith assumption. There is something to the idea, I think, of the movies about children or children's movies that get a lot of sort of mainstream praise that are, you know, complimented for highbrow praise. Right. Yes. I think that's probably the better way to put that tend to be movies that, that get to the sort of sad, lonely, isolated nature of childhood or certain children. And I think if you, you know, that makes a certain degree of sense because if you think of like children who grow up to be artists, writers, filmmakers, like there is there, you know, there probably is more of a, you know, more of those people started out as sad, sad, lonely kids with big imaginations. Right. So I think those kinds of stories about childhood get told with the most specificity and, um, care because those are the stories that people know. And ultimately the stories about the well-adjusted, you know, happy little like kids who have a billion friends and are invited to all the birthday parties and whatever. Those kids have those movies too. They're just sort of, you know, despicable me. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? It's just like (laughs) they have the movies that aren't necessarily about, you know, sad little kids, but if there's the one kid, you know, <laughs> the one of the scenes in this movie I really love, not to distract us. I should say, if there's one kid out there who gets, you know, who sees something of his own life in Where the Wild Things Are, then that's, you know, wonderful and worth it. One of my favorite scenes in the movie is the classroom scene where the teacher is teaching the students about, like, the heat death of the universe yeah. <laughs> at grade, like, four or whatever the hell that these kids are in, which I think is supposed to be funny. I don't think we're supposed to be like, oh, yeah, remember when you learned about the heat death of the, of the universe in grade school? Um, but it's not played, like, for yuck-yucks. It's very, it's yeah. played very sort of, like, flatly, which to me feels, uh, yeah. you know, very Spike Jones. But it's like, you wonder why Max would be depressed right. when he's being learning about the heat death of the universe, right. like right before puberty. Well, and again, it's all about the you know we see him taking in all of this stuff about the world around him, and then in the second half of the movie, we see what that feels like to him. I think we we you know we see what it looks like in the first half, and in the second half, we see what it feels like, and. I don't know. I really, I really love it. So I want to talk briefly about Spike Jones and why, why the involvement of Spike Jones in this movie 
was probably the prime mover for it having Oscar buzz. But beyond the fact that like yeah. the book was so beloved that it was, you know, highly anticipated anyway. But it's a beloved children's book and I think this movie had more buzz than a typical adaptation of a children's book and I think Spike Jones was the big reason why. And ultimately it's because his first two movies were Being John Malkovich in 1999, Adaptation in 2002. Both of those collaborations were with screenwriter Charlie Kaufman. Both of those ended up, neither one were Best Picture nominees, although I think if you had top 10 um, or whatever, top nine in either of those yeah. years, I think one or both of them. I think get, probably both. I of think them. probably both of them. I think that's true. But both of them definitely had attracted uh, Oscar attention in terms of acting and screenplays. Malkovich gets nominations for Catherine Keener and the screenplay. Bizarrely, doesn't get the nomination for John Malkovich, even though there was a lot of precursor attention for him. I think that was a weird year. That was the '99 Oscars. So. Cameron Diaz gets the SAG Golden Globe nomination, doesn't get the Oscar nomination. It's just Keener. Malkovich got, I think, some critics awards. And ultimately, that I feel like was the year where like Malkovich was hugely um, buzzed early and Christopher Plummer for The Insider was buzzed yeah. very early for playing Mike Wallace. And both of those performances missed. And I still don't understand why. Yeah. Whereas, like, I, I mean, weird. Wait, wait, did you say that the screenplay wasn't nominated for being John Malkovich? No, I think it was. Oh, okay. I thought you said that it wasn't. Sorry. And then, and then Spike Jones got the lone director nomination that year for Malkovich. So that was like a really, really big year. Um, Spike I don't know what's this weird Oscar anomaly where it's just like under no other name would these movies be like embraced by Oscar because they're just so strange. That it's like, what could he possibly deliver that they're, that Oscar is not going to pay attention to at this point? And the answer is where the wild things are. <laughs> well, right. I um, think, well, the interesting, yes. And I think that's true. I think if you look at being John Malkovich, it was so, it, it as a movie, it's a very, very odd choice for Oscar success because it's so peculiar and particular. And ultimately, its ideas are actually kind of pretty radical, especially at the time. Like, there was some, like, gender is a construct stuff going on in that movie that mm -hmm. does not get credit for, and I feel like it should. I ultimately feel like that was a Trojan horse, right? Where, like, we are going to sneak in this very odd movie about existentialism and, and identity and whatever, and, you know, dark, dark comedy, into Hollywood, un, you know, through by appealing to their own narcissism. And what it essentially is is... We're going to take this, you know, very typical but kind of highbrow and respected actor and make him the centerpiece of the conceit of this movie. And because of that, we're going to get everybody's attention. Everybody, like, just watching that trailer once, you couldn't not be fascinated by what this is going to turn out to be because everybody knows who John Malkovich is. And all of a sudden you appeal. It's like, you know, it's where... Hollywood gets the reputation of like, oh, they're going to reward a movie like Argo because it's, you know, about filmmakers and it's about how right. great Hollywood is. And this was sort of the same way, too. It was just sort of like how fascinating the inner workings of a Hollywood actor's mind. And I think that's was sort of the Trojan horse that got Malkovich in. Adaptation is sort of similar in that way, where adaptation is all about not only 
how fascinating is it to like just to write a movie amazing you know what i mean like it's you know well, what goes into it but also it's how fascinating what goes into a new yorker article <laughs> i think it's just and ultimately you get another very smart daring strange movie that you know that attracts the likes of meryl streep and Nicolas Cage and Chris Cooper and all of a sudden adaptation is one of the more unlikely like Oscar winners Chris Cooper you know basically swept the supporting actor awards that year that's very true I don't think being John Malkovich or maybe I don't not think but I think part of the narrative of being John Malkovich like kicking off Spike Jones is like a kind of can't do wrong with Oscar person is like you're talking about 1999 where it's like all of the or not all of them because you have like the green mile but a lot of those movies that were making it through with oscar were kind of pushing the limits of what mainstream oddness would be or at least like a lot of movies that year did even something like fight club which wasn't really an oscar movie but like kind of pushed the narrative of yeah. what was going on and what was accepted critically and by audiences. The Matrix, you have Blair the Witch Matrix, Project. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But like if being John Malkovich had happened maybe two or three years prior or after, like could that have happened? And then I think uh, adaptation kind of piggyback, piggybacks off of that. And I think really the only thing that kept where the wild things are from entering this kind of conversation really or being embraced by the Academy is money. Oh, because yeah, it was a bomb. Quite a bit. Yes. It wasn't a bomb in that, like, it did actually make good money, and it opened really well. I mean, like, it opened well, better than most Spike Jones movies make in their whole runs. But, but it didn't it, it didn't so make money over its, yeah, over its budget, I should say. Yes. Yeah. I think it's also, it's interesting that after adaptation, so Jones and Kaufman kind of diverge again, and... Kaufman makes another movie right away, or gets another movie made right away, um, writes the script for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, directed by Michel Gondry. That happens in 04, so it's you know only two years after adaptation. The, the iron is still hot at that point, and Kaufman gets the original screenplay Oscar for, I think, both for Eternal Sunshine as a movie, but also for these sort of three movies in a row, three script in a row run of Malkovich adaptation, Eternal Sunshine. I always feel like if Eternal Sunshine had been the first of those movies and not the last ones and not the last one, I don't know if that gets the attention. And I mean, ultimately it also maybe doesn't have the cast that it has if it comes first. But it's, I think I really do feel like that sort of the hookiness of the Hollywood angle of being John Malkovich really was a big part of why Jones and Kaufman sort of got to like sneak in there. And then mm-hmm. by this point, so Charlie Kaufman then goes off and he makes Synecdoche New York. And that's another just sort of like hugely like burrows into his own psyche in a way that is very apparent on the screen. And, and it's a masterpiece. I was going to say, it's a movie that I really, I, I, I have to tell you, I hated that movie the first time I saw it. I genuinely... It's a very unpleasant movie, but... I left the theater and I was basically just like, how dare you subject me to that much unpleasant, like, just unpleasantness. And I remember it made me feel so bad. And it, like, pull, like, full-on, like, 
put me into a weeks long funk. It took me a long, long time to crawl out of the way that I felt after seeing Synecdoche, New York. Mm-hmm. And it took me, it took me to, it took me to Philip Seymour Hoffman dying and watching that movie again after he died to really recognize how great that movie is. And ultimately, I think some perspective on why I felt so bad at that time and where I was in my life at that time when I watched mm. that movie. And I think it's a, a, it's a testament to the movie that it affected me that much. And Absolutely. I think with some distance, I was able to recognize that. But like that is a, I don't know. I don't know if I'm the only person. I I can't I can't imagine I'm the only person who feels that way about that movie. Just in terms of like, no, the way I it mean, affects. Me. I remember how like aggressively angry some reviews for that movie were. Um, I think I re- I mean like he's always an asshole, but I think <laughs> I remember a Rex Reed one that was like, oh well, yeah, I can imagine. basically equated the movie to dog shit, and uh, yeah, I remember reading that and being like, you are wrong. <laughs> Usually you are Rex Reed. It could have been any other review. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, it is a bummer that he is given, I mean, like, of the Spike Jones movies, like, the ones that could have just, like, run the nominations, certainly below the line, like, it feels like this could have been his biggest Oscar movie, or, like, I wouldn't say should have been, because it's not yeah. my favorite of his but like, I think it is in my another favorite of universe his. where this movie either didn't cost so much, wasn't already kind of tainted, and then didn't lose money. I think that we would be looking at multiple Oscar nominations. Yeah, because it's just like you look, especially even at the nominees this year, and this one could have just run the gamut. I think it, it does. I mean, we should also mention that because it was such a long delayed production, this one did kind of have a sour taste in its mouth that didn't really turn until we saw that first teaser trailer with the arcade fire song. Attached the te- to the it. arcade that fire kind of teaser trailer was, is one of the most impactful trailers I can remember in my lifetime, just in terms of like everybody saw that, that trailer that was already, I think Twitter was enough of a thing at that point that like, a, a trailer could debut and it could like get around very quickly. And I remember that day that that trailer came out and everybody was just like, so wowed by, yeah. I don't know, just like how incredibly effective it's a it perfect is. distillation of what the like take on this material is. Like, yes. If there yes. has been in the past decade like a perfect trailer for what a movie is, it is that first teaser trailer. It's on um, my very short list of like most perfect movie trailers of the of you know the two thousands at least let's say and you know trailers I feel like have gotten for as much as people rag on them about like they give away the whole movie and it's just like yeah but the good ones are better. If you go back and watch what 90s trailers looked like, go back and watch. Yeah, they're terrible. They're terrible. They're all full of voiceover. They're all full of like uh hokey sort of like ad copy and whatever. They lack a lot of finesse the yeah. way that like And they're all and it's all now. like and even because like even the kind of footage that they're working from, where like that sort of, you know, unfinished not final cut kind of footage that they're working from just looks bad and looks grimy and grainy and gross. And now I think the good trailers that we get these days are just, uh, 
so far beyond what they used to be. But like that trailer is something that one I rank all the way, always up there with my perfect trailer, which is the cloud Atlas super indulgent five and a half minute. Like <laughs> the one that was like right film. before Toronto or something that must've yeah. been. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. It's like six minutes long. It's no, so but bad. this one, like I remember just like crying from this trailer and it's like, yep. when's the last time you actually cried from a teaser trailer? Man, also this trailer like... got me into arcade fire. Cause you know how bad I am with music. Like I didn't oh, know. I love arcade fire. And like this, wake up the song that is used in this trailer is so good yeah. john legend does a virgin a version um with the roots that is also Ooh. fucking slay oh i should um, check that out oh yes you should um but yeah like i remember and i mean i this was pre-twitter for me but i remember like showing it to a dozen people like you have to see this um i don't know i mean like and that's the other thing of like people's like problems with the movie of thinking that it doesn't represent the book so much. I I don't know why you could watch that trailer and not be primed for what the movie is and that it is not whatever yeah. fanciful, colorful version of the book you thought right. it was going to be. Right. Um, I love yeah, the environment of helped, this movie. Like, set up the movie in a better position than it was before that trailer. Cause I remember, cause it took like, two years or something for this movie to make it to the screen. And I remember yeah. when that first test footage from the movie came out and it bombed across the internet because it was never meant to be real footage, but like people treated it like it was leaked footage from the movie. Yeah. And it's really just like test VFX to see that they can do what they wanted to do. Yeah. And I'm not sure if it's still on YouTube, but if you go back and watch it, if you find it, it doesn't look good. And it's like, Oh, I'll have I to go remember, check that like, out. Dialogue of it being really weird and people just thought that it was yeah it's very previs yeah um, can we talk about the vocal performances in the movie yes because they're so good i remember this one being like every once in a while there'll be performances that like make people start talking aggressively about how there needs to be a voiceover oscar i want to get to that in like approximately six minutes i just okay <laughs> I because I do want to get to that. Well, I, I want to just sort of talk about specifically these performances. I f- want to talk about how perfect casting it is for James Gandolfini to play Carol, the main uh, the main monster, who behaves the way that this monster does because it's it's it really suggests to me that like somebody was watching The Sopranos in a very similar way that I was, which was not that he's this like cool mobster or even just this sort of like erratic live wire mobster but it's just like oh he's a fucking child he's just like and a depressive oh right well that yeah both of those things and it makes him dangerous because of in you know in the sopranos it's because of his you know context of that story yeah it's right violent um because he's a mobster and in the context of this it's just like he's a giant monster who could like really hurt you and you know possibly eat you and it's, but it also gets to like the lovability of this guy who's just sort of, you know, kind of sad, but also kind of hopeful at the idea that like this new person is going to make everything okay. And it, re- you know, obviously reflects what Max is going through, but it also, you can never get too close to this monster because of this, there's this edge to him. And I think it's, 
it's perfect casting. And then Gandolfini also just sort of like nails it exactly in a, like, I don't think Mm -hmm. any of these roles are easy to nail because like, they're so idiosyncratic and they're so specific and it's not like you can just like, you can't just go big. I think a lot of sort of animated movies and kids movies and movies that depend on voice performances, you can a lot of the times just like go big, go super big and you've nailed it. And that's not the case in this movie. I don't think that's on the table. You have to really modulate. And all of these actors, Gandolfini, Lauren Ambrose, Catherine O'Hara, um, Paul Dan, I think Paul Dano's great. Honestly. Yeah. If Paul Dano was ever perfectly cast, he plays an oversized goat in this movie. Perfect casting. <laughs> um, Chris Cooper also plays a like a giant amiable bird. Perfect yes. Casting. Yeah, and and like Forrest Whitaker is just sort of like kind of mumbly and kind of like goes along with whatever Judith Judith says. Catherine O'Hara is a scream in this. Catherine O'Hara is yeah. so abrasive and unlikable and like bitchy and petty and about everything. But it's just like, everything is perfect with that character. It's so funny. You know how they filmed all or how they produced all of these vocals too, right? They weren't like the typical, like throw these actors in a sound booth and like record with them all day. No, the, they were like actually on a sound stage together, all mic'd interacting uh, and like it kind of shows each other to the ground like i kind of want that video footage just yeah. to see like Catherine o'hara beat the shit out of all of these actors i feel like there was a similar story to that one f- with fantastic mr fox that yes. they right that they actually had them like interacting and and i remember a meryl interview yes. talking about that where she like just showed up and was like all right i guess we're doing this i don't know what the hell we're doing yeah but, like yeah you're in the dirt that's another great movie, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Um, I, w- I want to talk about Lauren Ambrose for a second. I don't think I, – I, I can't imagine I've talked about it on this podcast, but it may be on Extra Hot Grade or something like that. Lauren Ambrose, who, of course, was most notable at this point still probably for uh, – I mean, she's done a bunch of other things too, but Six Feet Under is still her signature role, her signature TV show. And I was also a Can't Hardly Wait stan. Of course. Newer, can't Hardly Wait. Can't Hardly Wait was my senior year of high was came out at the end of my senior year of high school, so it was very timely for me. You don't want to know how old I was. <laughs> I do not. Um, but I think between Lauren Ambrose, the, the sort of like the vibe that she puts out, and her character Claire Fisher in Six Feet Under has always reminded me very, very strongly of my cousin, and who was like a year older than me, but was always like three or four years older than me sort of experientially and like vibe wise, I always really looked up to her and she was cooler than me. She got in trouble. She sort of like, you know, she was like kind of, she was one who's just like, Oh, like I'm not going to smoke, but I'm going to like, going to go in the basement and sit with you while you smoke like that kind of a thing. Um, And so I've always felt a very, uh, familial, like big sisterish vibe, because obviously me as the oldest, I don't have older siblings. So that was like my cousins, but the one that was the ones I was closest to. That's where I got that sort of like big sister vibe from. And so I've always so had... when Max is hanging with KW, that must have sent you. It it fully does. Like I'll, it does not take very much to get me onto that vibe of. KW is how I'm going to work out all of my, like, big sister emotions and whatever, and... I got I'm a bad person. Well, are you? I don't know. I don't know. 
Well, I'm glad you came. It'll be good to have someone around who doesn't eat everybody. I mean, you just bite everyone. But biters aren't so bad. Eaters are the ones I just can't stand. I have no plans to eat anybody. <laughs> All right. Good. Well, good night. I think she's perfect. I think she's just... She's just aloof enough. She's, like, lovingly aloof. Does that make sense? Yes. Like, that's... That's the vibe. She's not like she has her own stuff going on. She has her own other friends, but like she, you know, she loves you and she's going to tell you that. But also, like, you've only got 65% of her. And, uh, I don't know. It's like, it's, it, it so really good. gets, it gets me. It gets to the heart of me. I don't know. Did any of the other characters really like nail it, especially for you? I mean, definitely Alexander, Paul Dano's goat, and, like, Paul Dano, like, that's a really good vocal performance, like, exactly, like, kind of what we expect from Paul Dano, or, like, underrate Paul Dano for. Um, Alexander's the, like, shy one who's, like, constantly apologizing for his presence, basically. What does he Um, say the one time where he's just like, can anybody ever hear me? Yeah. It's so sad. So funny. (laughs) Um, it's funny, funny answer. That's exactly like what the experience of like growing up, like, uh, like sad, shy kid is like watching this movie. Part of you is saying that's so funny. And the other parts like, that's so sad. Yeah. Yeah. Good timing for both of us to say that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think he's, more, I don't so, know. Yeah. I feel like if, so were there a competitive Oscar for voice performance this year? I would hope that. Because I'm, I'm of two minds of an Oscar on voice performances. One of which, yes, there should be. Whether it's, like, an honorary one every year that, like, one person gets it. Or, like, as a competitive category because there's, you know, so many movies that, like, you're not going to... You're not going to struggle to find enough nominees. And I feel like in a year like 2009, where, where The Wild Things Are comes out, Gandolfini's certainly worthy. Ambrose is worthy. Dano's worthy. O'Hara's worthy. Um... My my concern with having a vocal performance category is it's just going to be the big celebrity voices from the big animated movies, and that's it, right? See, but my my counterpoint to that is a lot of people thought that about the animated feature category, and it's proven to not yeah, be true. That's true. Um, I think it would – like, what stinks is, like, this would have been a great year to have it, but because – performance capture was like such kind of a controversial thing at the time i think we would have not really known quite what to do with it unless maybe it would have given an out for like performance capture performances because like the one you didn't mention that i think would probably like i think it's an actual performance but um maybe it would have been like our actual voiceover performance winner and that's zoe saldana and avatar Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, very possibly. I also think of, like, Andy Serkis, where it's like, because, you know, every time Andy Serkis does, you know, a big character in a movie, it's always like, you know, when are we going to let him compete in supporting actor or whatnot? Yeah. But, like, I feel like the Gollum years, you probably would nominate Andy Serkis for voice performances, but, like, not the Planet of the Apes years. You know what I mean? And right. I think you go through the years of just, like, the big animated movies and there are like Ellen DeGeneres probably wins for Dory. Robin Williams probably wins for Aladdin. Eddie Murphy maybe wins for um Shrek. But like 
you hope it that... is a skill though and like yeah i think particularly the era we're talking about there's a lot of like great examples of like what would have been worthy and i think absolutely james gandolfini would have been worthy well and you if you want to even stick with spike jones uh scarlett johansson for her mm-hmm. was a really big one um the year that Babe was a Best Picture nominee, you would have loved to have seen a great classic voice artist like Christine Cavanaugh get her due for voicing Babe. And, you know, I think with a movie that was accepted and was sort of, you know, praised the way that Babe was, I think that that probably happens. At the very least, gets a nomination. Um, I would have nominated Alec Baldwin as the narrator in The Royal Tenenbaums. I think that is Fantastic. such an incredibly, like, important but also like really really funny and well well calibrated voice performance Mm -hmm. you know james earl jones for playing darth vader but i think of like so i was on uh blank check a couple weeks ago doing the the blanky awards for the best of by the time we were listening to this it'll be like a month ago that i was on this podcast but then go back and listen to it it's very fun but so we talked we talked about you know voice performances of of the year there and I mentioned Catherine Keener in Incredibles 2, who I think is incredible. <laughs> um, Catherine Hahn in Spider-Verse. Also that, well, so uh, David, so David Sims brought up that like the, the voice performance of the year for him was Jake Johnson in Spider-Verse. And as soon as he said that, I was just like, oh yeah, it's true. Why didn't I think of that? I didn't think of it because it's not like, there's not a lot of um, glitz around it. There's not a lot of like, it's not, it doesn't. It doesn't stand out as like an exception to anything. It's just sort of like essential to that movie. And because of that, I you know, I worry that that's the kind of thing that will get overlooked and and passed over in favor of I don't know, what's what's a big I mean, I think if we had it this year, one of the other that would probably be eclipsed in Spider-Verse for like Brian Tyree Henry, who is also really great. Oh, but... I don't think I don't think you'd get a Brian Tyree Henry nominated either. I think you'd maybe get like a Nick Cage, you know, for doing it's I think it would be that kind of a, a level of like of like, you know, big sort of flashy big name combined with fun idea for a character. So I think you'd, you know, but then you'd get like Sarah Silverman for Wreck-It Ralph probably would get a nomination uh, for Ralph Breaks the Internet. And I think that would be hugely deserved because I think she's great in those. Nothing else. This is an example of why there should still sometimes be like special achievement Oscars because. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that too. But like, also I think it would be really fun to, to argue and debate every year about which are the five best vocal performances i think that would be super fun i probably be another way to get popular movies yes onto the telecast as well we're so obsessed with that absolutely um all right i want to talk about the uh the 09 oscars for a second because where the wild things are ultimately is a non-starter that year partially i think because it didn't have any entry points in like the acting categories. I think sometimes movies, uh, if you're going to be a nominee without any acting uh, contenders, you need to be either super, super artistically like front street about things. Right. Where it's just like, you've got to be, um, I'm trying to feel like, okay. So like avatar that year is a great example where like avatars hook is 
you know, visually revolutionary and, you know, changing the whole game and everything's insane and the, and the visuals or whatever. And James Cameron, a master of, of, you know, the form and whatnot. And I think ultimately where the wild things are is muted by design. And also yeah, that sort of mutedness was a little bit divisive. So that's... You also a- think about something like... Let's take visual effects, for example. Like, I think it would, where the wild things are, would be a great visual effects nominee. This is still when they were only nominating three movies for visual effects. Um, But, like, in the shadow of Avatar, where it's like, where the wild things are is doing something much more subtle. It's a mix of real elements and, and, like, actual CGI in the same shots. And then Avatar, which, like, sure, there's real elements from the performance capture side of it, but on a practical level, a movie watching level, everything is computer generated in front of you. And yet, and I, and I, and I stipulate to all that. And like, there is great work that went into avatar and people worked very, very hard on that. And it's, it, it is laughable to me. The idea of like, what would you rather watch right now? Joe Reed, uh, avatar or where the wild things are, because then I think you would just imagine like a, Joe-shaped cloud where I was and like, gone to go see where the wild things are and like <laughs> away from from Avatar like there's there's no there's no choice to me what movie I would rather watch again I'd be really curious like it outside of the Avatar vacuum if where the wild things are could have shown up somewhere anywhere because like art direction production design our... my god uh, original score, best oh, original song, yeah. both of the sound categories. It's just like yes. Avatar is such like a visual spectacle, and if anything, like sometimes, particularly with Oscar, things are really thought of reductively. And like, yeah. as to, as far as like being the visual spectacle, Avatar kind of ran the like everybody else off the market that year. Whereas like if it hadn't been there, maybe there would have been some more thought played to where the wild things are, which I think yeah. it. Closer to nomination time, it was regarded more as, like, the visual side of it than, so, yeah, like, the narrative side of it. 2009, in the wake of the great and terrible snubbings of The Dark Knight and WALL-E in 08, 2009 is the, the year that they expand the Best Picture category to 10. And I think it ultimately shapes that conversation in terms of what best picture became that year which was avatar big um like hurt locker was you know hurt locker almost feels like the the dark twin of avatar anyway where like hurt locker's nomination depended just as much as a- on avatar being there as on you know its own merits and i'm not mm. talking about bigelow versus cameron i'm talking about like the david versus goliath of Oh, you know, yeah. big, big Avatar, little tiny Hurt Locker. And I don't think you can have... Well, I think you could probably have had Avatar without Hurt Locker, but I don't think you could have had Hurt Locker without Avatar. I still don't think Avatar would be the best picture winner if Hurt Locker wasn't there. No, but I think it would have been something else. Right. Maybe, and maybe that something else would have been, been precious. Maybe that something else would have been, you know, even Inglorious Bastards, which like doesn't look like the small movie compared to a whole lot of things, but you know would have looked small compared right. to Avatar. So like, it really became like what it would have been is an auteur narrative versus a studio narrative because yes. like that's kind of like there's a lot of other shadings to it that 
were brought to the forefront, but like a lot of that conversation between Hurt Locker and Avatar goes down to auteurism versus yeah. studio. Sure. So I think if I if you try and pick out what were like the five movies that would have been, you know, if it was only five that year, Avatar, Hurt Locker, and Glorious Bastards, I think definitely up in the air certainly seems like the kind of movie that would have been nominated anyway. Precious was an insurgent sort of like Sundance uh, sensation that kept building and building and building throughout the year. I think those are, if not your five Best Picture nominees, then like four of those five with the fifth one maybe being a director nomination or something like that. And then so your other five that year were An Education and A Serious Man, which were small, but Up, District 9, The Blind Side, all of them made a ton of money. All of them were sort of like, you know, had their own little angles on being blockbusters. Obviously, District 9 was not a kind of not not necessarily a top down. It's, you know, as much of an indie blockbuster as you can get in terms of like yeah. it came from not America, you know, all that sort of thing. The blind side. I also don't think that nomination happens without Peter Jackson right. producing. Right. And like throwing his clout behind, especially the Oscar campaign. I also people forget that like because I think the 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 appreciation for District Nine has definitely cooled by you know 2019 standards, both because Neil Blomkamp's follow up movies were not very good at all, and I think District Nine itself, if you go back and watch it a second or third time, it doesn't hold up as much. It doesn't. It's a one and done movie. It's not meant to be revisited. I don't. I look back at that, and I remember at the at the time. I don't think I was over the moon about it, but I was just like, this is a really good blockbuster movie. And I probably, I probably now think it's a, you know, it's a pretty okay blockbuster movie, um, but not a best picture nominee for me. Blindside is hugely divisive. A lot of people really hate it. To me, it's always been a movie that got dragged along on the charisma of its star. And because I genuinely love Sandra Bullock so much it doesn't always bother me as much that the blind side is not is a nominee even though it is yeah. categorically a bad movie but i think it's a bad movie that is a, you know also a testament to its lead actress's star power and sometimes i'll take that you know the oscars sometimes do care about money especially a movie that's not like des- seemingly destined to make the kind of money that it does and then when it does yeah and it's a certain type of you know movie that they can at least think of in that way yeah they go for it and i think blindside has as much to do with sandra bullock as it does with just how much money that movie made and then up had its spot in this top 10 set in stone from the second they announced it was the top 10 because so yeah. much of this was in reaction to you know wally not getting nominated that like if you knew anything, you knew that they were not going to let Up suffer the same fate. So, fine. But ultimately, I feel like if you if there was an 11th movie this year, or like, because wasn't Star Trek a PGA nominee this year? Yes, and like, Star Trek was like seemingly very close to that Best Picture slot. Um, it was sort of PGA like close of in the way that like... predicting it. Um, close in the like, way that like Deadpool was close. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, but like it, it, people were like scraping kind of what was seemingly the bottom of the barrel because it was this was the like cemented 10 year. It's not the anywhere between five and 10. We will right. never have 10 again. Um, so it was like, well, what's it going to be? And I think 
that I think the tenth slot was District Nine. A lot of people think it was Blindside, but I would venture yeah. to guess that District Nine. District Nine are, are are a serious man. Yeah, a serious man only had two nominations in total. I feel like that's you know. They got strong armed in because of a preferential ballot, though. Well, preferential like, ballot, and because the... a lot of those votes were people putting it at number one. I mean, I it was my number one of that year. So, oh, was it? Yeah. I've always been a little bit it's cool. My favorite cons. I've always been a little bit cool on a serious man, but I, I I get it sort of you know intellectually. But I also feel like because the conversation so much that year was, it's a top ten and it's intended to get more broadly appealing popular movies in there that it shaped the conversation in a way where it's just like people were sort of asking about like, you know, can Star Trek get in there? Can the blind side get in there? Can uh, district nine get in there? And I feel like to me, the real diamonds in that year come from all sorts of corners that nobody who was nominating Oscar movies we're looking into, even though it's not like, I think a lot of years when you talk about like, what are the movies that are off the beaten path? You have to go super indie or like foreign language or documentary or something where you really have to like pull from these corners of the film landscape that nobody really looks at when you're talking about like, what are our best picture nominees? But like 2009 to me is not like that. 2009, where the wild things are is there for the taking. I think um, a movie like Bright Star is there for the taking. A movie like Adventureland, which like that is not a genre that is going to be respected. But like I think that's one of the best movies of that year. I think In the Loop is one of the best movies of that year. Um, I think the informant is great that year. Yeah, like they the intention was to get more mainstream things in the best picture lineup. And I think that fully backfired because what it really did is open up the conversation to like, what could we possibly try to talk about and things in certain ways so that they do get attention. Um, so that it's like smaller things. And I think district nine is the perfect example of that. I think. Yeah. Wait, so what were your top 10 there? You had a serious man. Uh, number one. Uh, Serious Man is number one. Let me actually pull up my letterbox okay. list. Do you have your list available? I have mine, so I'll go through it. I haven't, uh, I haven't uh, adjusted this in a while. I sort of, I tinker and I, um, I move things around. So yeah, that's why I have half of my list set to private because really I'm just playing <laughs> with them for forever. Yeah. Okay. So my number one that year is Where the Wild Things Are, as I mentioned. My number two is Bright Star. Three is The Hurt Locker. Four is precious. I don't know if I would still have it quite that high, but I do feel like that ends up on my top 10 in some way or another. Fantastic Mr. Fox, Adventureland, In the Loop, The Informant, uh, Away We Go, which is a very divisive movie that a lot of people really like, but I really, or a lot of people really don't like. I really love it. I love it, but I can't go all the way to a top 10, though maybe it's like I love it more than a few of these, so maybe I should just put it there because I love it rather than... Yeah. I mean, ultimately, sometimes that's just sort of the way I go. And then for number 10, I have seen Nombre, the... um, What's his name from True Detective? Carrie Fukunaga. Carrie Fukunaga movie, which I really, really, really loved. And that was right before he sort of crossed over. I remember that being... Uh, Independent Spirit Award nominee. But, like, there's Moon is that year, Coraline is that year. I really liked The Brothers Bloom. I know that was not a movie that everybody liked, but um, I don't know. I, I'm fond of a lot of 2009, even though 
I tend to stick up for some of the mo- I think there's a lot of like auteur movies that did not go over super well that I liked better than others. Well, um, okay, so mine, uh, I have number one, A Serious Man. Number two, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Number three, a movie I still feel strongly about, even though, like, uh, my number three is Up in the Air. A lot of people, like, this is the example I give when I say I don't adhere to Jason Reitman. It's only good with Uh Diablo Cody. Uh Um, Like, I get people's complaints about Up in the Air, but it's a movie that just works so well for me. Um, It's along the lines of, like, the type of things that I want to see more of at the movies. I think Yes, I uh, think that's true. I think one breaking point for that movie for people is the actual interviews with people who have recently been fired. And it either works for you or it doesn't. It really, really works for me. I saw that movie in the theater and cried throughout half of it i i mm-hmm. my my dad had just lost his job my that was the year of the financial crash and my dad had lost his very very long-standing job and it was a very emotional time for me this is really mm-hmm. very much me talking about me crying in movies podcast but you know what i'm just gonna go with it um pivoting to uh tears our new <laughs> podcast name is just tears <laughs> pivoting no it's pivoting to tears i like that even better yeah. Um, and so that was my Favorite first experience with Up in the Air. And then I think every subsequent experience, because I was every time I would see that after it, since I would be further and further away from that sort of the primacy of that emotion, I was I was able to pick it apart, I think, more and more. I think that movie does its Vera Farmiga character really, really wrong by the end of that movie. And that stings in a way that doesn't get me to forgive it. I don't it. necessarily see it that way. Um, or at least I haven't, ex- I didn't experience it that way. Um, oh, you know what's my yeah. number 10 like, that movie? I think that she stands, like, uh, what's interesting, I'm always interested in dualities in movies, but, like, you watch that movie again and you watch how characters or scenes, like, play in opposites of each other. Yes. I find it just really fascinating in that movie. Uh, my um, number 10 movie of that year, by the way, was not Scene Nombre, I totally forgot on my list, oh. is Whip It. Yeah. Maybe I need to fix my list to put Whip It on mine. Yeah. That, that's all, that'll that be up. our activity after we uh, end this podcast, is just let's all tinker with our 2009 list. It was a like, really interesting the... year. It genuinely is uh, a very fascinating year. My number four... Very divisive movie, um, not like a filmmaker we're super um, happy with right now. Uh, Lars von Trier's Antichrist. Oh, you you were a fan of that one. Oh, huh. I'm a fan of Antichrist. Antichrist is fucking great. And um, I mean, like, as far as this new era of Lars von Trier's movies, I feel like there's there's a real divide, I think, after... Melancholia feels like the transition movie from what von trier used to be to what he is now antichrist is the only one of like this new von trier that i like and i think it's brilliant i think it's fantastic so you like Um, this better than melancholia yes i do interesting fascinating Uh, it's a lot the movie is a lot but i think it is precisely what it sets out to be um and it's uncompromising and gross and i i just think it's it's brilliant and right. not for everyone. Um, my number five is The Hurt Locker. Number six, In the Loop. Number seven, Where the Wild Things Are. Number eight, Fish Tank. Fish um, Tank is so good. Cheating there because Fish Tank had a qualifying release. Um, and then like opened in early January for a real release. Uh-huh. Um, my number nine is Jacques Odiard's A Prophet. 
Oh, sure. And number 10, I had Inglorious Bastards just as a, like, that movie's great. But Mine's I don't know in my top do. 15. Really, I think it should be Whip It. Yeah, Whip It's great. Everybody go see Whip It. That's spend, spend your day right. Go see yeah. Whip It. Yeah, 2009 is a very, very interesting year. Very interesting year, not an exciting movie year. It's like a more interesting Oscar year to talk about than the actual movies. See, I think it's a more interesting movie year to talk about than the Oscars. I don't think the Oscars, to me, that top 10 at the Oscars doesn't give me a ton. It's boring, but I think it indicates like where Oscar conversations would shift towards in that like. Yeah. Yeah. It's this weird fallout of like the 10 or the expanded best picture lineup. Like we can, the, it feels like there's more room to talk about certain type of movies that before the advent of the 10, it was so like limited. Like yeah. you had to be positioned as something first, but it's like now multiple things can be true about a movie. Yeah. I think that's probably There's less rigidity in like the thought process of what we're going to nominate or what we're going to consider. To me, I always just come down to with 2009 where it's like, I would much rather be hanging out on the margins with Spike Jones and Jane Campion and Iannucci and Soderbergh and Dave Eggers and, you know. Soderbergh. Is this the contagion year? No, this was the um, informant year. Oh, see, I do not like the informant. Oh, I love the informant. I super Maybe love Maybe if I watched it again, I would like it more. But that was the movie that I sat through and I was like, all right, I get it. I get <laughs> it. I, I get it. Yeah. Um, and, and then the movie just kept being like, but do you really get it? Do you get it? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm pretty sure I get it. I love um, it. I, lo- I do love Contagion also, to... but that's a different year. I, I love Contagion. Uh, let's bring it back to where the wild things are, because we yes. talked a lot about how it feels like this could have just fallen right in line anywhere below the line. Where, if you can pick one category, where would it go? Oh, that's interesting. Either... I'm or sell cheat. me on two. I, I think it's either score or production design. Both of those are fantastic options. I, since you said score, I won't bring it up, but I find it very stupid <laughs> that this is not in the best original song lineup. And I yeah. get that it was like a diluted thing that it's like, there's a lot of songs and it like blends in and out of the actual score. Um, All is love is the one that, yeah. um, like kind of was put towards the top and i even think because of that like how much is score how much is song that both of these might have been considered ineligible um however all is love should have been an original song nominee all is love part of the all is true all is lost cinematic (laughs) universe all is Um, love is the little is the sort of like is the yippy kind of like yeah that's the it's like the fun moment where it's like they start playing again yes wild things and max what's interesting this is is also the year of 
one of the nominees that like made people like talk about getting rid of this category, the Paris 36 nomination. Right. Right. Which is like, you know, we can get like Karen O eventually made up. I was going to say nominated for her. So ultimately, ultimately her gets the score and song nominations that we wanted for that you and I wanted for where the wild things are. Yeah. But yeah, you look at the, the the talent behind this movie because I also feel like if I, I should mention the cinematography, which is by uh, Lance Accord, which Beautiful. always ties because Lance Accord I always think of um, Lost in Translation, and I always like being reminded that Sofia Coppola and Spike Jones were a thing, and that she wrote a character in in Lost in Translation to make fun of Spike Jones. Um, yes. And then also Cameron Diaz. But that's a whole other thing. Lost in Translation is wonderful. Um, And then they have all of these, like, people that they both work with all the time that it's like, yeah, it's kind of difficult to be both of their friends or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But, yeah, I think a score nomination for Karen O and Carter Burwell as a tandem would have been pretty great. I I think the texts on this movie are flawless i genuinely feel like the the look and feel of this movie even if you're not into the story that they're telling which i am and even if you're not into you know spike's sort of overall vision for where the wild things are which i am i i don't know how you can see the way this movie looks and sounds and moves and not be incredibly impressed i think it's a worthy nominee in every craft category even costume design oh yeah even, yeah, just for that, you know, the little wolf onesie or whatever, like, it's perfect. All right. Anything else we want to bring up? Um, odd little odds and ends before we go into the IMDb game? I love yeah. Richard the raccoon who shows up when when he crawls into, <laughs> when Max crawls into KW's mouth when he's hiding from Carol. And he just gets down there and he looks over and there's a raccoon and he's just like, hey, Richard. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I guess to bring it back to like the emotion of this movie, this is the this movie is like the most physician heal thyself relationship that I have with any movie because it's like my grumbles is like it's just a bunch of like the people that like loved this movie at the time like because I was in college I was like it's just a bunch of white boys talking about their feelings <laughs> blah 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 and I'm like yeah yeah yeah, yeah. look in the mirror. Dude. Um, <laughs> I mean, so I do like, feel like that's people's reactions that. to David Eggers like, anyway. I had but, a yeah. very, very visceral reaction to this movie and a very emotional reaction to this movie. Um, so it's like it's it was like interesting to revisit and not like to feel those things, but not like feel like I need to be anywhere but this theater. Um, yeah. So like I, I do think that this is a really powerful movie. I don't think like everybody's going to like respond to it and I don't think like the audience it's necessarily playing for is like underserved in any way. Right. But it does do it very, very beautifully. Um also like what was I gonna complain about? The people that think that this movie is not for kids and it's like First of all, multiple things can be true. Maybe it can be for kids and for adults, but like... Well, it also can be for some kids and not other kids. Yes, and it was not marketed towards children. Like, it's only in title. But I think that was a lot of people's problem with it. I think a lot of people were like, why are you making Where the Wild Things Are if it's not for kids? (sighs) 
because it's a like I get that it sounds pretentious to some people, but it's more about childhood than for children. And like, also, I like the fact that the book can be for children and the movie can be for maybe something else too. Yeah, I don't mind it. I don't know, but I'm and I, famously I like complaint when they clearly weren't promoting and selling this movie to children. Also, part of me feels like you know how I feel about like people who are like try and like zhuzh up their kids as like testaments to their own great artistic taste the people who were just like well my child had such great insights on the Fellini film I was watching the other day and I'm going to tweet about it and tell you all about it (laughs) and I feel like some of that is you know with the parents who were just sort of like my tried to take my kid to where the wild things are and it's just like maybe where the wild things are is just for you maybe it's just about your remembrance of what this book was for you as a child and maybe your children can have their own things I don't know all right do you want to play an IMDb game? Yes. Let's help? leave the hipster Portland of where the wild things are and go to IMDb. I am famously soft on hipster Portlandism, so I am fine with it. But yes, explain to the listeners what IMDb game is. So we end all of our episodes with the IMDb game where we challenge each other to name the top four titles, the known four in a famous actor or actress's IMDb profile. Um, Caveats being we avoid the Marvel Cinematic Universe and uh, Harry Potter because those float to the top and they're boring. We also mention if there's any TV work or voiceover work, such as where the wild things are. Um, And after we get two wrong, we start giving gears like, we need hints past that it's just like throwing all the hints out there indeed that's the imdb game all right i want i want to give to you first and then you can give to me how about that okay all right so spike jones director of where the wild things are of course made his name as a music video director acclaimed music video director one of his what's that he did indeed he did indeed um, one of his most acclaimed music videos was for the Fatboy Slim song Weapon of Choice. Yes, uh, Christopher Walken. Christopher Walken, the big dancing star of the Weapon of Choice video. So I thought, hey, Chris, why don't you attempt the known four for Christopher Walken? Christopher Walken. Uh, hmm, Deer Hunter, his Oscar. Correct. Catch me if you can. Correct. Almost his second Oscar. There's only two Ooh. nominations. Oh yeah, that's true. Christopher Walken's a tough one. He is. He's in a lot of movies. He's in a lot of movies. A lot of them not the type of thing you would float to the top of IMDb game. Yep. And there's no voiceover work. Nope. Okay. Um. So, so the Jungle there? Book remake is out. Um, He's actually really good in that. Is he? Is he, Chris? Would we say that? I thought he was funny. I hated I that part of that movie. I hated that movie so much, and then when his part came, I at least got a good chuckle. I was. I can't remember what was on an episode of Blank Check, or I was just talking to Griffin, but he did his uh, his impersonation of Christopher Walken singing "I Want to Be Like You," and it's. Now don't try to kid me, man. Come, I'll make a deal with you. What I desire is man's red fire to make my dream come true. Now give me the secret man cub. Come on! Show me what to do. Give me the power of man's red flower so I can be like you. Oh, we do. I want to be like you. I want to walk like you. 
talk like you do. You'll see it's true. Someone like me can learn to be like someone like you. Quite something. Anyway, uh, bug him about it, listeners. Bug Griffin about uh, doing. I want to be like you. Ooh, ooh. Um, <laughs> all right. You've got two. Uh, Did you make a guess so... in there that I didn't listen to? I think you did. Uh, what, what, it was older. What did I, I guess? threw you off. You did throw me off, but I did say something out there. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. trying to remember what it was. We could pretend like it didn't happen. I don't uh, think it was correct, if if that helps. Oh, but... I, I, uh, the, ch- the other Chimino, uh, Heaven's Gate. Yeah, no, not Heaven's Gate. Um, Batman Returns. No. All right, that's two strikes, so you get years. Your years are 2007 and 2012. 2007 is Hairspray. We just talked about that. Yep. He's really good in Hairspray. He's very strange, but I enjoy enjoy him. We talked about Hairspray uh, the other week in terms of a movie where I enjoy everybody in that cast, even though I don't think they're all doing a word-worthy work. I'm glad they all got that SAG nomination. Yeah. It was originally supposed to be Billy Crystal, and I really kind of wish that it was Billy Crystal, even yeah. though Chris Walken's great. Um, what was the other year? 2012. Seven Psychopaths. Yes. And there well we go. Well done, Chris. You're so much better at this game than I am. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's great. All right. What do you got for me? Okay, so we talked briefly about voice performances. Um, I had a whole preamble for this, but we'll just move on to her, where you talked about Scarlett Johansson. Um, Fun bit of trivia, Scarlett Johansson actually replaced somebody in that voice performance who was actually on set for the whole thing. It was Samantha Morton. Right. Your IMDb game challenges Samantha Morton. Right. Okay. Samantha Morton... We will never get that footage, and I would kill to hear it. <laughs> it will never happen, but, like... Yeah. I bet you she was good. I don't know. I bet she was great, but probably very different. Like, yes. the tone of the movie apparently shifted in, like, the editing room, and that's why she was, like, nixed, yeah. because, like, it wasn't working anymore. Interesting. But, yeah. I think Scarlett Johansson's wonderful in that movie, though, so I'm fine with Incredible. it. Incredible. Um, she was on my ballot that year. She does t- keep taking other roles that seem to belong to other people, though, doesn't she? Okay. Uh, yes, she does. <laughs> um, Minority Report. Minority Report. Which I remember at the time people being like, she should get nominated for that. And I'm like, no. you're stupid. And then I watched it like a second time. And I'm like, oh, no, wait, she should have. She's great. Um, Are... Sweet and Lowdown. No. Okay, shoot. Her first nomination. Not there. In America? In America, All yes. Right. A great, same year as a Minority Report. She is not getting yeah. nominated twice. In that well, year. same year, but it technically counts as an 03 release for uh, American purposes because that was the year she got. Oh, okay. So yes, it says 2002. On I think it IMDb. might have played a festival. You know how IMDb and then like stuck around for a year. Yeah, IMDb just gener- essentially just puts the first festival you played at. So it might have played Toronto the year before or something like that. You know what else has staying powers? Sledgehammers. You know what else is a sledgehammer? Oh my god, I hate you. In America. Genuinely a great movie. Alright, so I have one strike. Yes, and you have two more movies. Okay. 
Sam Morton, Sammy Morton, Samantha Morton, all. Uh, now I want to guess Synecdoche. Synecdoche? Yes, Synecdoche, New York. She's great in that. that Wait, is it she shows up first and then Emily Watson shows up playing her, or is it the other way around? Emily Watson plays Samantha Morton. Okay, when that happened, I laughed so so hard. It's very, very funny. (laughs) Performances in that movie are great. Anyway, yes, in America played the 2002 Toronto Film Festival, and then... Sundance in o three in January of o three. Oh, dang! I didn't know that movie stuck around that long. And then weirdly, it's listed as Toronto Film Festival also for two thousand three. Interesting. I didn't think that was possible. Uh, <laughs> maybe they did like a special screening or something. Like yeah, that was part very, of its campaign. Yeah, look into it, listeners. Let us know. Let us know. You're still waiting. We're still waiting on one movie. You're biding your time. I I am. I'm 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 stalling. I'm stalling is what I'm doing. Shamelessly stalling. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think of some other Samantha Morton movies. No TV, so there's no Harlots, that new show that I think oh, like, right. three gay people on Twitter watch. <laughs> right. Um. Uh, not Morven Collar. Morven Collar. Just to, just that's to, your guess. Yeah, You're throwing to it out there. Yeah. No, not Morven Collar. Right. Um. Okay, so this movie, 2009. Tougher, and I know you're reaching for stuff. So I'm. I will say I remember this as being on. The same uh, the same movie on an IMDb game for an actor. Oh, interesting. I could be wrong, but I think that we've had that before. Okay. Do you think this is a movie that I've seen? Um, I do believe you've seen this. I haven't seen it. It's okay. like one of those things that's always like forever on my list because right. I think it's on Hulu and it's never left. <laughs> All right. Um. What was she doing in 09? You probably wouldn't remember any of the women in this movie, though I remember her getting really good reviews. Oh. Is but, she like, like, this is a movie known for the men in the movie. But it's not, like, a male ensemble. Awards movie or not an awards movie? Awards movie. Okay. Awards movie with a very, very low gross that I pointed out in one episode. Okay. So, like, it got, like two nominations or something like that it got one nomination for one of the actors yes oh uh the messenger the messenger all right really she is really good in that movie i like her i like her a lot that movie movie. yeah gotta watch it you know what else you could have said elizabeth the golden age i could have you unfortunately cannot control the wind sir (laughs) no matter how much uh samantha morton shakes her little fist she couldn't get that nomination Spain! That movie should have been so good. It is not, but that one scene is as good as I wanted the rest of that movie to be. Oh, goddamn, that movie is so bad. It's really bad. It's really bad. Stop trying to make movies about Queen Elizabeth and Mary Queen of Scots, people. It just doesn't work. Do make more movies where Kate Blanchett is only allowed to scream. <laughs> Fully true. And that's our episode. If you want more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? 
Uh, you can find my wild rumpus on twitter.com. I'm at Chris V file. That's F E I L. I am also on letterbox under the same name where you can also find our IMD or our, we have a list of all of our, uh, this had Oscar buzz titles with IMDB game trivia and direct links to episodes. I'm also at the film experience.net. I thought your wild rumpus was only in DMS, but apparently it's out there for all to see. Uh, uh, right there on my feed talking about <laughs> i don't know uh, like this episode comes out in march so i'll probably be talking a lot about gloria bell and her smell so chris that's i got a question. email i got a, a screening invitation for gloria bell and all i could think of was just like it's almost here it's coming you're not allowed to go oh i'm not going but like i'm i'm waiting i need my second viewing of it to be in a public screening yeah I can't. Oh, my God. I can't wait. Gloria Bell. It's so good. Gloria Bell is already out on this episode. Listeners, take all of your gay friends. Yes. Take your mother. Yes. Take your grandmother. Yep. Go see Gloria Bell. Get, book an entire row of seats and get your life, essentially. Joe, aside from screenings of Gloria Bell, where can our listeners find you? Oh, you know, I am on Twitter at Joe Reed. I am on Letterboxd at uh, Joe Reed. In both of those cases, Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. Um, I'm a freelancer, movie freelancer at large right now, so I don't know. Hey. Hire me. We would like to thank Yeah. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please, please, please remember to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get podcasts. We have gotten a taste for charts and we like when we climb those charts. So please help facilitate me texting Chris several times doing during the week and telling him how high our podcast is charting it is send it send our podcast to all of your friends who represent your different shades of emotions <laughs> yes yeah a five-star review in particular really 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 helps us out with itunes visibility so climb out from under that pile of sleeping plush monsters and tell the people if you love us which we hope you do so that is all for this week we hope you will be back next week for more buzz but you-